1: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just tuning into this podcast and did did not listen to the last one we did with Bill Federer, you're going to be lost. You got to go back and listen to the podcast we just did on the modern state of Israel. We're continuing it right now on the midweek podcast. Uh, Bill gave us a lot of history leading up to the to the founding of modern-day Israel in 1948, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off. For those of you that don't know, Bill Federer has a great ministry. Uh, His website is AmericanMinute.com. He's written several books. Uh, He is just an amazing historian who can tell a story about how all this came together for modern-day Israel. Bill, in the last program, we covered a lot of ground. We were just getting up to the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1948. Uh, The Brits, who had control over the area from 1917 on, were kind of fed up trying to negotiate between uh, Jews and Arabs in that land. Um, and there was a, kind of a bit of an Arab revolt between 1936 and 1939 in the land. or many Jews coming back to the land because there was anti-Semitism going on in Russia, Ukraine, Europe. And people were trying to uh, escape this persecution that they were having. And the Brits really didn't want to deal with it. So the UN basically established the boundaries ...of Israel, and it became a state in May of 1948, and pretty much the next day there was war. Now, Bill, how did these people, who by about that time, there were, I guess, somewhere around five or 600,000 Jews in Israel by about 1948. Now there's about a little over 7 million Jews in Israel... Um, How did they have an army ready to fight five different countries the day after they were founded? How did this happen?
0: Uh, They were courageous. Um, And and then you did have some Americans on their own going over there and helping to organize them. Uh, They were using antiquated weapons left over from World War I. Uh, But but it was just a miracle that they were able to uh, survive. But it was a tremendous amount of courage, and um, but it, it stands as one of the the modern day miracles of Israel, a nation that had not been in existence for nearly two thousand years, suddenly coming back and being born in a day. Um, so, uh,
1: well, let me let me, let me ask you about that because Jews for many years had been going over there, buying land, and establishing little communities, and they also were able to figure out ways to farm traditionally unfarmable land and create a lot of economic activity over in that area and then um as 1948 approached uh there were four different things that could have happened to palestinians in certain areas uh palestinians could have stayed in fact there, uh the prime minister or the first prime minister of israel ben Gurion. Invited them to stay. And then some of their property was bought by Jews. Some of them left because Arab countries said, we're going to war and you don't want to be caught in the crossfire. So get out of the country. Uh, They warned their Arab uh, neighbors. And according to some of the accounts I've looked at, Bill, about 600,000 Arabs left uh, what we now call Israel. Israel. The question is, how many were forced out? Do we know that number? How many were forced out by Jews coming in or by warfare? Because that's really where the rub is. That's really right now where people are trying to say, oh, those people were forced out of their homes. They deserve to have their homes back. What's the truth of that?
0: Um, The Israel just defended itself. And they, they were being attacked. Um, there was the message sent from Egypt saying that the day of um, the liberation of the land is at hand. And they told the Arab population to leave. And then once they wipe out the Jews, they could come back and they could have all that land. Mm-hmm. And so they voluntarily left and went into the surrounding countries. Now, Uh, America assimilates people from other countries all the time. Uh, You have Vietnamese boat people. You have, you know, people from Africa, people from Latin. We assimilate them. Well, the surrounding Arab countries did not want to assimilate the Arabs that had come out of Palestine because they wanted to keep them as an international pawn with which to use to reclaim uh, that land because they wanted to get rid of Israel. Back to the Muslim Brotherhood, back to the Wahhabi teaching. The Wahhabi's goal is to have a one-world Islamic state. They call that a caliphate. They want a one-world government that's Muslim. That's the goal of the caliphate. And um, the word Muslim means one who has submitted. Islam means submission. And they think there'll be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. A moderate Muslim thinks the world's going to submit to Allah later. The fundamental Muslim thinks the world's going to submit to Allah now. Now, uh, the dilemma for the West is when the non-Muslim world shows itself strong uh, and and wins battles, well, then the Muslim world goes into remission. And they said, well, the world's going to submit to Allah, but it's going to have to wait till later. But when the non-Muslim world shows itself weak, then the fundamentalists think, hey, it's it's happening. It's going to submit now rather than later. And and it's... it's um, uh, like ringing a bell, the, the, and so the more the non-Muslim world shows itself weak, the more the the fundamentalist Muslims become more aggressive. It's sort of like the law of the jungle, and um, but but anyway, uh, so uh, back to to Israel. So after World War One, the Ottoman Empire was gone, and the Muslim populations began to Westernize, and uh, but then you had. Uh, 1924, the British let the Wahhabi take over Arabia. 1938, oils discovered in Saudi Arabia and now the Saudis, which were the most violent backward Muslim country uh, with chopping off arms and legs and female genital mutilation and, and all kinds of backward stuff. Even to this day in Riyadh, they have Chop Chop Square. I've talked to soldiers that have been there. And they said, yeah, I saw a woman get, you know, beheaded. And I saw another one, you know, if a woman is seen with a man who is not a relative, the woman is accused of rape. And in Islam, when a woman is raped, she gets punished for allowing herself to be used as a tool of Satan to tempt the man. So the women have to wear the burqas to look unattractive on purpose, because if they look attractive and they get raped. It's their fault for tempting the man. And so they get whipped a hundred times and Mm -hmm. it's totally backwards. Um, there's a Supreme court justice Jackson. And, and, uh, he said uh, that, uh, middle East law is the antithesis of Western law. So, so we punish the raper, they punish the victim of the rape. And, um, so, uh, so anyway, 1928, Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is started by six employees of the Suez Canal Company, Albana, and they come up with this two-step strategy of infiltrating countries pretending to be moderate Muslims, like Muhammad was originally a religious moderate Muslim in the city of Mecca, but then transitioned to becoming a political Muslim like Muhammad did when he moved into Medina. And so you begin to have all these Middle Eastern countries be infiltrated By Muslim Brotherhood people. And then the Muslim Brotherhood um, with um, uh, Al-Khattab began to spur off uh, these other groups, uh, the Wahhabis, uh, excuse me, the the Al-Shabaab, the Boko Haram in Africa, uh, influencing the Al-Qaeda in the Taliban and um, the uh, Khomeini in Iran, But all of those got their inspiration from the Muslim Brotherhood who put into this two-step plan of the Wahhabi teachings that they want a one-world government um, that's Islamic. And um,
1: This is why, ladies and gentlemen, um, you're not going to find in the so-called negotiations between, say, Israel and Hamas or any of these other groups – you're never going to find the Muslims agreeing to land for peace because it's in their charter. In fact, let me just read something here from the Hamas charter. Uh, This is Article 13 of the Hamas charter. Quote, there is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavors, unquote. In other words, they are not open to land for peace. This really doesn't have anything to do with land, does it, Bill? It goes back to the ideology of Wahhabism, the ideology of jihad, the ideology of if you don't see it my way as a Muslim, I'm going to kill you because I need to bring uh, Islam to the peak of... uh, of the government, and everybody must submit to uh, Sharia law, it, unless you agree to submit, and that's what Islam means, submission, there will be no peace. So this really isn't about land at all, is it, Bill?
0: No, no, and and um, if Israel goes, uh, it's just, it would be a tremendous encouragement that it is happening now rather than later. And mm-hmm. you can be guaranteed that um, coming across the southern border, you have lots of uh, Muslim uh, t- terrorists as well. Now, one of the uh, things that I need to point out here, after World War II, you had Europe European countries piecing themselves back together again, mm-hmm. uh, and they started republics, and India. Uh, I think 1947 was given its independence and it's now its own country and And Egypt and all these, all these countries are all happy that World War II is over and they're putting themselves back together until the KGB. And so the KGB doesn't want these countries to be republics that are free and in the orbit of America. They want to take them over. And so... The, the KGB does what's called critical theory, critical race theory, critical economic theory, where they would observe a country and see all the groups, ethnically, Bosnians, Croats, Serbs, economically, racially, um, socially, religiously, you know, Orthodox, Sunni, Shia. They really don't care what the groups are. They would f- identify some as victims and others as oppressors, haves and have-nots, And then they would organize protests that they would whip into violent uh, riots. And once you get into a riot, then people think emotionally and not logically. My friend was killed. I don't want to sit down and talk about, right? And then they would co-opt the media to blame the leader of the new republics for all of the crises. And when the public opinion turned against the leader... Then they would do a coup or rigged election, and they would replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And so this uh, was being implemented after World War II. And you had uh, the KGB started FARC in Colombia with the help of Castro, and uh, Brezhnev and Khrushchev helped Castro to uh, take over Cuba from Juan Baptista, and then the KGB helped Che Guevara start ELN in Bolivia and start de- liberation armies wherever you see liberation army that's KGB mm. and they would start them in Africa in the Congo well guess what in early 1960s they started the Palestinian liberation organization it's a mm. KGB group and they got a leader of it Yasser Arafat who was the nephew of the mufti of Jerusalem who made the deal with Hitler and so now you have a combination of very potent ingredients. You have fundamental Islam that hates the Jews and wants a one-world government mixed with communist tactics. And so now you have this not just Muslim Brotherhood infiltrating, but you now have the KGB tactics of infiltrating, breaking a country into groups, and then pitting the groups against each other to cause this internal crises. And then you can destabilize the country and then you can take over. And so the KGB started the PLO for the purpose of sowing division. That's the very purpose of its existence is to sow division in the Middle East so it will not become pro-West and pro-America. Now we sort of hung on to Saudi Arabia in in a strange way because when FDR was on the USS Quincy in uh, 1945, and he met with the king of Saudi Arabia. They did a secret oil security agreement where Saudi Arabia agreed to sell oil to America if America would build a military base and defend Saudi Arabia. And FDR agreed to that. And so from that time on, Saudi Arabia, which was this one of the biggest oil producers agreed to sell their oil in U.S. dollar denominations. It's called the petrodollar. And since they were so big, all the other oil-producing countries sold their oil in U.S. dollars. And it bolstered our American economy. And they did the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, that everything, oil is going to be sold in U.S. dollars. And that is what was shaken with Biden snubbing the king of Saudi Arabia. And then Saudi Arabia's now agreed to sell oil in Chinese yuan and in all these other different things. So um, we're we're seeing the the ending of this uh, international oil for security secret agreement that FDR did. Um, but in the meantime, every time we were buying oil, we were helping to finance the spread of Wahhabism. So in America, we go up, we fill up our gas tanks, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 70s, and we're buying oil from Saudi Arabia, and they're using that money to export Wahhabism. And since Saudi Arabia is where Mecca is, and Mecca is where the Hajj is, it's one of the five pillars of Islam, and once in your life, you're supposed to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, under the Sharif of Mecca, who was a moderate, a modernist, it was more of a traditional thing. But after 1924, with the Wahhabis and the Sauds controlling Mecca, Muslims from around the world would go on their pilgrimage, Hajj, and they would get infected with Wahhabism. And then they would come back to their countries and say, hey, we're a poor country. You know how to get really blessed? Look at Saudi Arabia. They are super fundamental and they are super rich. Mm. You want to be rich. You got to be fundamental Muslim. The
1: prosperity gospel of Islam. There it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and so, um, but but it it is a fascinating period because you did have leaders that wanted to be moderate, and I mentioned Atatürk in Turkey, and he set up a secular state, and he banned the uh, calls to prayer, he banned the fezes and the burkas. He moved the weekend from Friday to Saturday and Sunday. He got rid of Arabic letters and uh, Turkish letters, and he used the um, uh, Latin letters. And um, he did keep Turkish, but he was moving in a Western direction. And, um, And then the Shah of Iran. And he's meeting with Kennedy and Truman and Eisenhower. And you see pictures of Iran in the 1960s and 70s. It looks like Southern California and the Beach Boys, Afghanistan. There's pictures of girls with their skirts going to college, carrying their books in Syria. There's pictures of beauty pageants taking place. And then you have Nasser in Egypt and Cairo was like, you know, Southern California. It was like, there's pictures of girls in swimming suits on the Cairo beaches. And Gamal Nasser in 1958 spoke at a political event. And he said, I met with the head of the Muslim Brotherhood and he sat with me and made his requests. What did he request? To make wearing the hijab mandatory in Egypt and demand that every woman walk in the street wear a Tarha scarf. I told him my opinion is every person in his own house decides for himself the rules. And he replied, no, as the leader, you are responsible. I told him, sir, you have a daughter in the school of medicine. She is not wearing a tarha. If you are unable to make one girl who's your daughter wear the tarha, you want me to put a tarha on 10 million women myself? Audience laughter. And so this was the attitude. These leaders in these countries dressed in business suits, shaved, um, and they wanted to be friends with the West until the Muslim Brotherhood came in Began infiltrating and threatening and killing these leaders, <laughs> and um, and then you mix in the communists working together with the Muslim Brotherhood, bringing their liberation organizations to um, sow this division because they don't want countries being pro-West; they want them uh, to be in their orbit. Uh, and then you you throw in globalists. So uh, we used to. You know, World War I, up until World War II, we had a foreign policy that was pro-America. After World War II, FDR put a lot of socialists, a lot of globalists, one-world government-type people into government positions. And so uh, the CIA and these different groups from World War II on have been working uh, two different foreign policies, one that the people in America think that we have. But on the other side, they're working a subversive globalist agenda, and the globalists want international crises so that they can swoop in with their answers. And so this is a part of the, the ingredient there. But, um, uh, but I did want to throw in that um, the word Palestine Prior to 1962, when the PLO was started, the word Palestine was always associated with the land of Israel. Hmm. Uh, There was the United Palestine Appeal in 1925, and it had a poster, Palestine, land of Jewish immigration and colonization, help the wanderer return back to his own soil. And you had Franklin Roosevelt meeting with the head of the United Palestine Appeal, and his name was uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise, and he he was a, a moderate. He he Stephen Wise started the NAACP, and mm-hmm. he helped start the ACLU. And Stephen Wise even did a a sermon that got a lot of attention. He says um, that Jesus was a Jew, and rabbis should be quoting him as a really good Jewish teacher. And um, <laughs> But Stephen Wise was the head of what the United Palestine Appeal, um, and he was get got a letter from FDR saying, "I'm so excited about the United Palestine Appeal, and and the people in America are happy to help Israel go back to its homeland." And um, and then you have um, uh, uh, even Golda Meir, and she's a meeting with Nixon, and um, she gives a statement, and she said uh, that there wasn't even um, a Palestine. She, it's a, what? Uh, I'll, I'll read the quote here because she says that we didn't displace anybody out of the land. Um, it's June 15th, 1969, Golda Meir. She's meeting with Richard Nixon. And she said, there was no such thing as Palestinians. When was there an independent Palestinian people with a Palestinian state? It was either southern Syria before the First World War, part of the Ottoman Empire, or it was Jordan, right? Because Jordan under Abdullah um, uh, got control. Golda Meir goes on, it was not as though there was a Palestinian people in Palestine considering itself a Palestinian people. And we came and threw them out and took their country from them. They did not exist. Mm, Yeah. So it it was the Ottoman Empire. And That's then, what people
1: don't get, Bill. They they don't know their history. They don't know that there was no such place as Palestine. They don't know that there are 400 million Arabs around the state of Israel with uh, miles and miles and miles of land, thousands of miles of land compared to Israel, which is what, about the size of New Jersey maybe? And yet the people who are claiming to be refugees from the land of Israel who um, are claiming that their land was taken from, taken from them. None of those countries want any of those people. Uh, I, 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 I don't see how people miss this. I don't see how people miss the, uh, miss the fact that if you read the Hamas charter, they're all about killing Jews. They're not about land They're It, they say right, right in their charter that this is not about land at all. They say it's uh, Article 7 of the Hamas Charter says the day of judgment will not come until Muslims fight the Jews. Article 8 says Allah is, is its target. The prophet is its model. The Quran is its constitution. Jihad is its path. And the death for the sake of Allah is the loftiest of its wishes. This has, and I've already read the Article 13 that says, forget about all these proposals for land. And yet people over here are still trying to say that the solution to all this is some sort of two-state solution, yet every time uh, a piece of land is offered, it is rejected without even a counter-offer, Bill. Uh, how do people miss this, and why are we so blind to think that when these people claim it's not about the land, we keep saying it's about the land. It's about, If we could just give them land, everything's going to get solved. Why don't we see this, Bill, in America? Why don't we get it?
0: A lot of people are uneducated and that they have learned that, all you have to do is control the narrative. If you can control what the mainstream media says and what the colleges say that most, people have a low intelligence level, they just want to be accepted by their group. And so if it looks like the group is moving in this direction, they'll go along with it. Um, but but education is, is the first step. You know, FDR, mm-hmm. he, he wrote in 1937 a letter to Stephen Wise, the rabbi who was the head of the United Palestine Appeal. And this is FDR. He says, mm-hmm. Dear Dr. Wise, please convey my good wishes to the National Conference for Palestine, which has been summoned by the United Palestine Appeal. The American people have watched with sympathetic interest the effort of the Jews to renew in Palestine the ties to their ancient homeland and to reestablish Jewish culture in the place where for centuries it flourished and from whence it was carried to the four corners of the world. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, the keystone of contemporary reconstruction activities in the Jewish homeland. These two decades have witnessed a remarkable exemplification of the vitality and vision of the Jewish pioneers in Palestine. It should be a source of pride to the Jewish citizens of the United States that they too have a share in this great work of revival and restoration and assigned Franklin D. Roosevelt. I mean... 1937, Palestine was the land for the Jews. And, um, and then you have 1948 and you have um, uh, President uh, Truman. And he is the one who uh, recognized Israel and had the United Nations recognize Israel. And so that 1948 Democrat Party platform, this is their party platform. Uh, it says President Truman, by granting immediate recognition to Israel, led the world in extending welcome to a people who have long sought freedom. We pledge full recognition to the State of Israel. We affirm to the State of Israel the right of self-defense. And so, this was the Democrat Party platform in 1948. Um, and now you got the the squad, the the Elon, and all those different ones. And um, so, uh, and then there's some interesting quotes. So. Uh, Abdullah, who was the um, king of Jordan, uh, he uh, welcomed the Jews back, and and it's so uh, eye-opening to uh, to read these quotes because you think, gee, all, all these the Arabs uh, hated the Jews, but uh, he he writes about how it was in Europe that the Jews were treated bad. Uh, so this is King Abdullah. This is in 1948. He writes this in the American magazine. He says, No people on earth have been less anti-Semitic than the Arabs. The persecution of Jews has been confined almost entirely to Christian nations in the West. Jews themselves will admit that never since the Great Dispersion did Jews develop so freely and reach such importance as in Spain when it was an Arab possession with very minor exception. Jews have lived for many centuries in the Middle East in complete peace and friendliness with their Arab neighbors. And that was Abdullah. He was the son of the Sharif of Mecca who worked with the British to defeat the Turks. Another son was King Faisal, king of Iraq. And he writes this in 1919. We feel the Arabs and Jews are cousins. And having suffered similar oppressions at the hands of power stronger than themselves, we look with the deepest sympathy on the Zionist movement. We wish the Jews a most hearty welcome home. And then you have the dad, the Sharif of Mecca in 1918. He writes, the resources of the country are still virgin soil and will be developed by the Jewish immigrants that the country is for its original sons, for all their differences, a sacred and beloved homeland. And so here you have these called Hashemites, that was the name of the family tribe that the Sharif belonged to, which was the same tribe that Muhammad belonged to. And the Hashemites controlled Mecca and the holy places since the 10th century on. And he was a modernist and he was a get along type of guy. And and so these were Arabs that were, had an, there's pictures of Chaim Wiseman with the King Fazl of Iraq. And so they were not enemies. What well, was the enemy? It was this Wahhabi teaching.
1: Yeah, and, I was going to say these are the moderate Muslims, Bill, that would say, "Hey, yeah, we can get along," but the Wahhabis won't have any part of it. And they're the Wahhabis now are um, are really controlling the Muslim Brotherhood. They're controlling Hamas. They're controlling, I would assume, Hezbollah. Uh, these are the radicals who who will kill other Muslims too in addition to killing Christians and Jews, am I right. correct? And
0: you're doing it with our money given to them by globalist leaders.
1: Now, how how many, how many of these weapons, Bill, have found their way, the ones that Biden left in Afghanistan two years ago, how many of these weapons have now found their way into this conflict being used by Hamas on Israel? Do we know?
0: Um, uh, it, It's strongly suspected that a lot of them are there. Um, even Marjorie Taylor Greene was asking that very question. But here you had a globalist, the Rockefellers, Standard Oil Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They have J.B. Morgan Chase, uh, the, the Rockefeller. They donated the land for the U.N. building, the Rockefellers. They're globalists. And with their Standard Oil Company, they were pumping money into the Wahhabi, Saudi Arabia, so they could spread this. But let's let's take it a little bit more recent. The Shah of Iran, he loved America. I actually went to college with some Iranian students. They had an American flag on their dorm room wall. I hate to admit it, in college, I did not have an American flag. (laughs) And these Iranians loved America. And the Shah wanted to secularize Iran, Mm -hmm. very similar to Ataturk secularizing Turkey. And the Shah had communists coming in, organizing, doing their critical theory. Right. organizing into groups. And they would actually have communist soldiers dressed in Iranian uniforms and committing terrorist attacks. So it could be blamed on the Shah. Sort of yeah. like a January sixth insurrection, where you have you know FBI agents going into bushes and putting on Trump shirts and coming out, and then having riots, and that gets blamed to Trump, right? And, and so you had the Jimmy Carter, rather than coming to the rescue of the Shah, abandoned the Shah. His uh, national security advisors, Viggy Brzezinski, whose daughter Mika does the, uh, the TV news show. Anyways, Viggy Brzezinski helped orchestrate the abandoning of the Shah, the American friend, so that the Ayatollah could take over Iran Mm. and bring in his fundamentalism. And what did he do? He started Hezbollah.
1: Gee, that worked out for us, didn't it?
0: And so he starts (laughs) Hezbollah in Lebanon. And what happens in Lebanon? You have the U.S. Marine barracks blown up by Muslim Mm -hmm. terrorists and connected with the Muslim Brotherhood, connected with uh, Iran, connected with al qatab and all these different violent groups. And Reagan, I loved him, uh, but his response was to pull America out. I actually mm-hmm. talked to some military people saying that Reagan wanted to send our military in there, but the military refused. Anyway, but long and short of it, we look like a paper dragon. You blow up a military base, America tucks tail and runs. Mm-hmm. We abandon our friend uh, the Shah. And America just runs. We just abandoned him. And then you had an interesting uh, Soviet. So we always think of two sides. There's always three and actually four, because now you got China and it's sending stuff over to the Middle East weapon-wise. But but um, the Soviet-Afghan War, 1979, and the big enemy is the Soviet Union. And we have uh, our CIA, it's the largest covert operation in our history up to this point. Covert means nobody in America knows about it, but the CIA is doing it. I know it's hard for people to think that that kind of stuff happens, um, but um, it's called Operation Cyclone. And we are arming and training the Taliban. Mm -hmm. We're literally giving them our best weapons. And uh, it was such a big deal that uh, Sylvester Stallone did a movie on it called Rambo 3. And Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts did a movie on it called Charlie Wilson's War. And so here you have the United States arming and training the Taliban uh, because the Soviet Union is the enemy. Well, who was one of the Mujahideen fighters that we were arming and training?
1: Osama Osama bin
0: Laden. Laden. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he starts Al-Qaeda. And um, and then you have, um, so so you see that it's the it's us propping up these, and so nobody believes that the Taliban could quote unquote surprise us and take the largest military base between China and Europe by surprise, and then having all of our military uh, just leave. Uh, I talked to military people that said they saw Chinese planes flying in while our planes were evacuating people out. In Bagram, you mean? I had an Uber driver yeah. one time and he had an accent. I said, where are you from? He goes, Afghanistan. He goes, I was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot trained by the Americans fighting with the Americans against the Taliban. He says, there was only a thousand of them that came in and we could have taken them out so easy. We had all kinds of missiles and javelin missiles. And, and he said, they had just motorcycles. And he said, we got an order from somebody at the top to stand down. And he said, yeah. my my... helicopter pilot buddies landed their helicopters in Tajikistan because they knew if they landed in Afghanistan, the Taliban would kill them. He said, I had to hide for my life for 10 days. And he said, finally, I was able to contact my trainer in America and he pulled some strings to get me out. And he goes, now I'm driving Uber and working at Panera. He goes, I'm an educated man. I got my wings. And, um, but he said, he said, yeah, they were saying they didn't want foreigners in, in, in Afghanistan. He goes, now China runs Afghanistan. And the military personnel that were guarding, you know, power plants and water plants, they're guarding the same plants. But now for the Chinese, it was basically Biden's gift to China for rare earth metals, for lithium batteries, for cars or whatever. But we just gave them Afghanistan. And so, uh, but then you have Jimmy Carter giving uh, all of Iran to the Ayatollah. But then you have an interesting thing. So, from 1980 to 1988 is the Iran-Iraq war. Now, Iran's controlled by the Ayatollah. We don't want them to win. And so, you have Ronald Reagan and Rumsfeld, and we are arming and training Saddam Hussein Mm -hmm. to fight the Ayatollah and the Iranians. And so, Saddam Hussein was a westernized leader. He's dressing in business suits. He's wanting to be friends with the West. And then you have uh, George H.W., who wanted to do his new world order, and uh, all of a sudden it flipped for him, and um, uh, and, and then you have uh, Bill Clinton, and you have the uh, Monica Lewinsky is get the scandal is beginning to get news. And uh, he fires some missiles, and the Bosnian-Serbian war begins, and Bill Clinton, when Operation Brute Force, is funneling arms through Iran to get to the Bosnian Muslims to fight the Serbian Christians. And... uh, and there's even a movie called Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro on a president running for re-election involved in a sexual scandal. And they hire a Hollywood guy to, to fabricate a war in Albania, which happens to border Serbia. And they put this war. Why? For one purpose, to get the headlines off of the, this president running for re-election. And, um, uh, but then you come up to the present. And as you mentioned, uh, arms... $85 billion worth of arms, night vision goggles, state-of-the-art drones left in Afghanistan. And now these weapons are being sold, and there's no tracking any of them. Um, and they there's suspected that they're being used against Israel.
1: Bill, as a Navy man myself, I said this before when it happened, but the worst thing a United States president ever did to Americans who were on the ground in a hostile country was what biden did to our military people and americans also on the ground particularly the americans he left behind you don't leave people behind when you have the opportunity to get them out and even if you don't have the opportunity to get them out you make an opportunity to get them out biden did the opposite he cut tail Uh, he turned tail and he ran and he left Americans on the ground. And to show you how unfair and biased our media is, I guarantee you that if Trump was president when this happened, and I have problems with Trump, as you know, but if Trump was the president right now, CNN and MSNBC would lead every one of their broadcasts off with day 524 of Americans left in Afghanistan. That's what we'd be hearing. We haven't heard any of that because Biden did it. And it's just, it frosts me to no end that the commander in chief did this to Americans, left them in the hands of the Taliban. And as you're pointing out, not only left people in the hands of the Taliban, but also some of our best weaponry. When all of that could have been evacuated, even if he wanted to get out, he could have gotten out and taken all that with him, but he didn't. It's it's a travesty and nobody's holding him accountable.
0: Yeah, it is one of these things where we think, you know, uh, two sides. Uh, there's always three. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. always Chinese checkers. It's not just plain checkers. Mm-hmm. You got two sides. It's Chinese checkers where you got multiple things all going on at once. And, um, uh, and so there's globalists. And, and they got the big picture. They wanted to have destabilizing global crises, healthcare crises, climate crises, any type of crises, because that gives them an excuse to usurp power for their mm-hmm. globalist goals. And and everybody down the the level is being used. And so, um, you have these different Muslim groups. They think that they're uh, going to be somehow benefiting from this they don't realize that they're just pawns in a bigger picture but there's no honor among thieves they each think they're using each other but but it doesn't make sense until you see it from a, a globalist perspective mm. you know mm. i was um i talked to people who had, were from iraq and there was chaldean christians they were minorities uh and they were protected by saddam hussein Saddam had six palaces, and they were staffed by Chaldean Christians. Uh, And I talked to some people who were part of those families, and they said that he he didn't really like the Christians, but he trusted them, and he knew that they wouldn't slit his family's throats in the middle of the night. And Hmm. I met one gentleman who was a Chaldean Christian general under Saddam Hussein, and he, he was a Chaldean Christian, and I said, how did you get to be in there? He says, they trusted me. They knew I didn't have any subversive, um, you know, goals. And so Saddam, for all of his faults, felt like he was supposed to protect uh, these Christian minorities. And then you look at Assyria and um, Assad, and Syria has six different groups. Uh, they had the different Maronite Christians and the different, you know, Muslim groups and the Orthodox groups. And it was like a balancing act to try to keep them all at peace. And um, you had John Kerry saying, "We just want a little war over there." They wanted they wanted to destabilize it. Uh, why? Because they had their their globalist aspirations and so forth. Um, but uh, even Assad was giving millions of dollars to Mulala, this little bitty Christian town that had existed for thousands of years, and they still spoke Aramaic, the language mm. that Jesus spoke, uh, until. Um uh, he was forced to pull out and the ISIS people went in. Um uh, but you had Hillary Clinton, and she was uh the secretary of state, and everybody pretty well knows now that what happened in Benghazi was gun running, and she was taking guns, even Fox News reported on it. Uh she was having guns that were used to take out uh Gaddafi and Libya were being funneled over to Syria to take out Assad and um uh, and then, you know, she was caught in it. And then she's like, "Oh, it was a long time ago, and who who cares about that?"
1: <laughs> That's um, right.
0: What does it matter now? <laughs> but but it is interesting. So when when we abandoned uh, and and switched, and we uh, took out Saddam Hussein, uh, we did something that any military historian knows you never do. We had, we dismantled the entire government. We dismantled the entire military. Um, anybody knows if it's a dictatorship, if it's a, a, where there's a king, you simply get rid of the one guy and you put in your guy. Even the Bible has the story, right? Josiah dies and his son, what is it, uh, Jehoahaz, the, the Egyptians come in, take him away as prisoner and they take his brother, Jehoiachin, mm-hmm. and put him in. Say, okay, you're you're now the king, but you just got to pay us tribute. You don't go in and dismantle the entire structure. And so Dave Kilcullen, former chief strategist in the State Department office, uh, said, uh, there, is undeni- there undeniably would be no ISIS if we had not invaded Iraq. In other words, if, if, if we would have just got rid of the leader, put in a friend one that's more friendly to us, but, but we dismantled the whole country, left it in total confusion, and out of that came ISIS, Hmm. And, um so so a lot of these countries as you know would get rid of their fundamentalist leaders if if globalists with American money didn't keep propping them up. you know there's a I, I had to take a screenshot of it. It was a Los Angeles Times article and it said in Syria militias armed by the Pentagon fight those armed by the CIA. <laughs> oh, gee, <laughs> they literally were doing this critical race theory, getting the two sides to fight each other, create this internal dissension. And it, it was so bad that um, Tulsi Gabbard introduced a bill called Stop Arming Terrorists Act, uh, March 13th, 2017. A- and Rand Paul introduced the bill in the Senate. And then finally Trump gets in and Time Magazine had an article. It said, President Trump ends covert plan to arm Syrian rebels. So here we were arming the bad guys. And um, so that's why there's concern, as you mentioned, of the arms we left in Afghanistan in the hands of the Taliban. Are they being used against Israel? And then you have Ukraine. And there's no accountability for anything we're giving Ukraine. Hmm. And then it's coming out that it's money laundering. That whenever you see millions of dollars and billions of dollars go to third world countries, The corrupt leader gets to keep a part of it, and the rest of it gets funneled back to the Clinton Foundation and all these different Democrats in America. Mm. Uh, I saw a cartoon, and it had Bidenomics. It says, uh, the government taxes the people. The government sends the money to Ukraine. Ukraine sends the money to uh, Hunter. Hunter writes the check to the dad, Bidenomics. Oh, Um, there you go. And so when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, guess what the poorest country in Europe was? Ukraine. Mm. Guess what the number one country giving money to the Clinton Foundation was? Ukraine. Oh, interesting. Europe giving the most money. Where are they getting the money? Hillary Clinton is having U.S. aid given to Ukraine that they keep a part of it and funnel the rest of it back. Mm -hmm. I even saw the headline where Zelensky was uh, taking billions of dollars of that the U.S. had given him and gave it to BlackRock for their management blackrock that's larry fink they're the world economic forum they're the one world government people
1: follow the money ladies and gentlemen follow the money well bill we could keep going i do have to say one other thing because since we are talking about israel and um this dispute that's been going on forever by the way ladies and gentlemen uh, a lot of people hated the Jews long before 1948. That's not the issue. Um, it goes back to jihad, it goes back to Wahhabism, it goes back to Muhammad, it goes back to the Quran. So this has been going on for 1,400 years. But I will say this, even though Israel has an ancient claim to the land, that doesn't mean Israel is always right or that Christians should blindly support Israel when they are wrong. In fact, the history of Israel in the Bible shows Israel repeatedly being punished by pagan nations and even thrown out of the land because Israel was disobedient. So we still have to hold Israel accountable for what they do it doesn't mean we blindly support them but yet on the other hand we don't buy into this nonsense that if Israel just gave up land suddenly all the terrorists would go oh yeah Jews are just fine let them stay where they are i submit to you uh, if Israel abandoned the land there and moved all the Jews to Vermont Hamas would still want them dead in Vermont okay so this this has nothing to do with land Uh, and so we just have to be clear about that. Now, Bill, if people want to go further, uh, and learn more from you, whether it's in a book or whether it's in the emails and the articles that you write, where do they go?
0: Uh, thanks. I wrote a book. It's called what every American needs to know about the Quran, a history of Islam in the United States. And, um, then have some, a DVD series. We have flash drives with my presentations with PowerPoints. And then my website's Americanminute.com. So AmericanMinute.com and the book, What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran. Um, I do want to point out that the Muslim Brotherhood started Hamas in 1985.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the uh, founder of Hamas, his son, became a Christian. Son of Hamas.
1: I've got the book.
0: It's yes. up, Saab Hassan Youssef. He grew up in mm-hmm. Palestine and he saw Hamas torturing Palestinians that Hamas suspected of working together with the Jews. And he knew these people. He knew they were not working with the Jews, and he saw them tortured to death. And he thought to myself, himself, he says, if this is the way Hamas works now, imagine what they're going to do if they ever get into power. And so from 1997 to 2007, Yousef secretly warned Israelis of impending suicide attacks and save their lives. Finally, he became a Christian and he escaped to America and Obama was going to send him back so he could be killed. Uh, But luckily enough people intervened and he was allowed to stay. He did a CBN interview on May 22nd, 2010. And Youssef said, my problem is, is with the God of the Quran. If we compare his personality to the God of the Bible, we will find the difference. From their fruits, we know them. The fruits of the God of the Quran is terrorism, beating women, killing children. My transformation took six years of study. It did not happen overnight. I had studied Christianity and other religions. I considered at some point not to believe in any religion. And then he concludes, he says, the only path I found peace, which was good for me and good for all mankind, was Jesus Christ?
1: Mm. Amen to that. And we're we're going to leave it right there, ladies and gentlemen. That's from the son of the founder of Hamas. Take his word for it, because he's exactly right. The only solution to any of this is Jesus. Let's all turn to him. Thank you so much, Bill. Check him out at AmericanMinute.com. And don't forget about the new online courses we have starting next week. We'll see you here next week. Lord willing, God bless.